Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Sachs' Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher, and I'm an associate professor at Clemson University. I'm also your host for this program. Today, I am very pleased to have Jalispeth Vaughn, Director of LGBTQQIA Resources at the University of Kentucky, as our guest to discuss her work and specifically to talk about the upcoming Trans Transgender Day of Remembrance that will be happening on November 20th of this year. So, Elizabeth, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you, Michelle. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak, particularly during this time with Trans Day of Awareness coming up. Wonderful. So we'll get to our topic, but before we get into that and your work and career, can you tell the people listening a little bit about who you are outside of work, hobbies, things you're <laughs> reading, watching, listening to, whatever you'd like to share? Mm -hmm. Well, the biggest hobby that I have is writing. I actually graduated from the Authors Academy with the Carnegie Center for Literacy and Learning, which is here in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, and I continue to take classes. Right now, I'm taking a class on the braided essay where you take two different topics and weave them or braid them together into one narrative. Um, I've also took a class in storytelling, which I thrived in. <laughs> I'm sure that's a real surprise. Um, reading right now, I'm reading um, Southern Sons, which is a Southern Gothic, Gothic novel by Lee Mandelo, who's a faculty at University of Kentucky. I haven't met Lee. It was just suggested to me to read the work. Um, so I um, read about halfway through it. And then I'm getting ready to reread Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Um, every November, I read it. I kind of picked that up for my mother who reads Pride and Prejudice every November, December. But um, I think because the beginning, the kind of crime that sets up Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil takes place during the holidays. But I'm a really big fan of Southern Gothic, um, Flannery O'Connor, Exquisite Corpse by Poppy Z. Bright and Anne Rice, which of course leads that I am watching the new Interview with the Vampire series on AMC, which I'm enjoying. And listening, um, still most mornings when I get to work at 7 or 7.30, um, I still listen to Beyonce's Renaissance beginning to end. Um, but I am one of those people who I actually do enjoy the holiday music. When I worked at Macy's, um, it drove most people up the wall, but I actually enjoyed it. So being that today is November 1st, there's already one radio station in Lexington that has started the holiday playlist, which for me is fine. November 1st is fine for holidays for me. Some people say not until after Thanksgiving, but I'm like, Halloween is the entry point and then it's fair game. Awesome. Um, another question is you know, kind of how'd you get where you are today? So I know that you've been in different roles in different places. Can you talk a little bit about your journey into higher ed and student affairs? Mm -hmm. Most of my life I have spent either living on or near a college campus. Uh, my father initially had a career in the military and government, but then was a professor of criminal justice and political science. Both my parents were educators, so I really grew up on college campuses um, and I got, would get exposure to like going to football games, but also going to all the fine arts and the lectures on campus. And so I, I really, universities have really been part of my life for most of my life. Um, I did my undergraduate at Murray State in theater, communication and dance. 
Um, there were two women, Dr. Crystal Coel, um, who was a lawyer, the speech and debate coach, and she taught um, persuasion, group communication, advanced public speaking, and she was really the first person to teach me about um, power and privilege and racism. And um, Lisa Graham Schneider, who was a young theater professor, was the first um, where I really saw undeniable acceptance and advocacy for LGBTQ folks, and they certainly had an impact. I initially wanted to be a professor. I still think what would be a better job than being a theater professor on a college campus? And I thought that is the life. Um, and I got into a graduate program, a couple of um, MFA programs in directing, and then I got cold feet. And um, my friend and mentor, Cami Pierce, um, was the director of African-American Student Services. And she said, go be a hall director for a year. You've been involved on campus. And of course, that was uh, over 20 years ago now. We'll say 15. No, it's been over 20. Um, I did, and um, I ended up getting my master's um, in higher education with the emphasis in social justice um, from Iowa State University. Um, worked as a hall director there with you, of course, both of us working as hall directors, next door neighbors. And um, Dr. Nancy Evans uh, convinced me to be the coordinator of LGBT Student Services, which was a GA position at the time. And of course, when somebody like Nancy Evans invites you to do something, you do it. Um, but that was a huge change in my career. I think we, because um, I know you did your doctorate at Iowa State, I, I think we were so fortunate for the time that we were there, having faculty like Nancy Evans, Dan Robinson, John Shu, Lara Rendon, Lori Patton Davis, Mimi Benjamin, Nana Osakofi. I mean, these are like pillars in the profession. And they really taught me, the program taught me to push back against the status quo by meeting people where they were at and challenging myself and my own biases when I was in conflict um, with folks. And from there, um, I was recruited to be the coordinator of the LGBT Center at University of Missouri. And then I worked at UC Berkeley in residence life and then to Sacramento State University, where I was the director of the Women's Center, the Pride Center, and the Multicultural Center, um, being um, the first trans woman to be director of a women's center and the first openly trans person to be director of a multicultural center. Um, then uh, came to University of Louisville. I wanted to be closer to my mother um, and worked as the assistant director of residence life. And I was also appointed as an exec board member of CODRA, which um, was the Commission on Diversity and Racial Equality, which was the advisory board to President Neely Bindapudi. And this position opened and um, people, people knew me. They knew I was in Kentucky. They knew I needed to be back in a center. Um, this is where my mother lives. My mother will be 80 years old next year. So being able to be in um, the small city where she's at doing the work that I really want to be doing um, was perfect. It was a perfect aligning of the stars for me. I love that. I, and I love how you said Nancy Evans invited you. Um, <laughs> she invited me to apply for the job that I now have at Clemson. <laughs> when I didn't take up that invitation immediately, I got a follow-up email that said, hey, I thought I told you to apply for this. So, um, but great, great narrative of lots of different experiences. And I know you've mentioned some people, but another question I love to ask is, 
you know, who are some of those key people for you, whether it's people you've already mentioned or additional people, because we always talk about how small student mm -hmm. affairs is. Um, but when we talk about who we know, people are like, oh, I know that person too. So who are some of those key players for you? I think definitely the faculty that I mentioned, Nancy Evans, Dan Robinson, um, Nana Sakofi's class pedagogies of dissent, radical theories of social justice, feminism, and the hidden curriculum of higher education is one of the most impactful classes I've ever had. We just studied different pedagogies, but really, I, I, I mean, really was really is really influential on how I approach my work. Um, I think in addition, um, you know, I've just had the opportunity to work with a lot of really fantastic people like Vernon Wall, who was initially Associate Dean of Students um, when we were at Iowa State, but continuing to work with him. Um, also, Pablo Mendoza, who was my supervisor at University of Missouri, and he's now the Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion at University of North Georgia. He did that same role at Indiana University of Pennsylvania, where he worked with Mimi Benjamin, uh, who we worked for at Iowa State, because that's how it goes. Um, Dan Ocampo, who is really a pillar in residence life, um, unfortunately died a few years ago, but uh, I think was like the best and greatest advisor for National RHA, and they have an award named after him. Um, of course, one of my best friends, who you know as Matthew Damschneider, is now Vice President of Student Affairs at Juniata College, and um, we work together at Illinois Wesleyan. And, and I will say, you know, not just because you're across from me, but it it's, was fantastic to have Chase and Marie, two of your students, then work for me at University of Louisville, and almost kind of that full circle, and how you and I were just able to connect a few weeks ago. And in some way, you know, time hasn't really passed in us. It, to me, it was, it seems like just this past summer, we were going to see Pat Benatar in concert, who <laughs> was a headliner at the iHeart Music Festival this year. So I'm like, hey, we were ahead of that. So, but yeah. Oh, that, that, I remember it well. So, <laughs> very good. Um, Okay, so you've told us a little bit about your journey through higher education and kind of the route you took to get where you are now. Can you speak more about the role that you're in and what really drew you? I know you said that your mom lives in the area. That's hugely important. Are there other things that have drawn you to this role and to the work that you do? Mm -hmm. We are really living in a time that I didn't anticipate five years ago, and that is there is a clear anti-trans movement that's happening across the country. I mean, we're seeing this in bills. Um, we knew as they popped up that first there would be the bills about um, transgender athletes, and then second would be the bills about youth um, and hormone therapy, um, and then we know the bathroom bills are coming next, but there is a true anti-trans movement that's happening across the country. Um, and I have a lot of fear in that. Um, I fear there will be um, specifically a trans woman that will be shot in a bathroom and that will end up in a court um, that will determine um, really if people are legislated to kill us or not. Um, and it's very scary. Um, 
but it was a time that I really needed to step into the role. And as I debated taking this role, because what did it mean to do this work as a trans woman at University of Kentucky? Um, Because my senators are um, Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul, who are not known for being advocates of the LGBTQ community. And when I was debating taking the role and I talked to people, um, and even for me um, that I prayed on it, I, I kept hearing over and over, but if not you, then who? Look at the experience I have. Um, I do have the strength and the confidence um, to do the work that needs to be done um, and to really work behind enemy lines, which is how I often feel. Um, when you look at how few trans women there are as director of LGBT centers and I couldn't find another one in the South. (laughs) And so it's like, you know, here I am. And um, I knew taking this role also made me a target, but um, we have got to be um, educating and um, really mobilizing our students to get involved politically um, and to vote. And that's very important to me, but really um, knowing what we are facing against as a country um, is very important to me to be doing this work right now. I'd like to have ask a follow up, and this mm-hmm. is on, on the list of questions I gave That's you at the time. Um, but to the extent that you're comfortable, how do you attend to yourself in the work? How do you navigate threats or mm-hmm. issues of personal safety while you're also attending to mm-hmm. students and policy and all of those other things? Number one, I have a very good therapist. <laughs> I, I will say that, and I and I think that that's very important. Um, one thing I'm I'm very well. There are many things, but something I'm very pleased with the University of Kentucky is our vice president of student success, um, who really uh, enacted this wellness program for all the employees. And um, those of us who who wanted to, um, we could get um, 50 free meal swipes, you know, to use on campus um, and free our $300 towards massage and acupuncture Mm. and 24 seven access um, to uh, therapists via online or mobile phone. And really, um, and that's really showing care um, and talking about that and how she wants us to be using the apps and and wants us um, to be engaged. I'm I'm also very vocal about what I'm feeling. Um, We have a former student um, from University of Kentucky um, who's been making a name for herself um, doing um, anti-transgender speeches. Um, She is a female athlete who is very, uh, a former athlete who is very much against um, trans athletes on campus. And so her speech is called Protect Women in Sports. And of course, she's not talking about all women because trans women are women. Um, But, and then right on the heels of her, um, we actually, Uh, or before she's coming in a week or so, we have Michael Knowles coming on campus who's been known um, for some anti-trans rhetoric. And so um, I made it not only aware to my supervisor and to the vice president and having a conversation about not only the impact that this has on our students and what they're feeling, um, but also my fear is how does the 18-year-old male whose frontal lobe isn't developed hear these messages about protecting women or needing to get involved? And does he act on these with violence? Um, Because that's what, you know, 
Charlotte didn't just happen. A led to B to C to D. And so you've got an anti-trans speaker, an election, another anti-trans speaker. We're going into trans uh, days of awareness. Like, you know, how does he respond to that? Um, and making sure that people understood that, yes, my job is here for the students and advocating for the students, but I personally become a target in this. Um, and those are things that um, I think because I'm very open to talking about that, um, I get kind of this, not kind of, I've been getting the support around me. I mean, the vice president coming to check on me and other folks, how is the community doing? How are we responding? Um, when we have the speaker, Michael Knowles, we're just throwing the party. Um, we actually have a restaurant that's owned by two women that um, was closed, but they're opening up just for us to do a party in the restaurant, you know? And it was just, I wanted to get my students right across the street off campus, but away from the speaker who's in the ballroom above the center. I, I didn't want to have the center open. I didn't want students to come here and be in the space. I wanted us to go off campus and have fun. And they have a space and there's a microphone. And, a, you know, people want to get up and speak or share things. That That's totally fine. Um, but really being intentional about creating space um, for students, but also keeping myself in mind and, and being honest with students. I think so much we try and say we have to show up that strong. But for me, part of showing that strength is the vulnerability. And when students have been saying to me, I'm scared, I say back, so am I. Um, and they want us to be scared. But it is scary. Um, and really owning that and then kind of turning that fear into some passion. What can we do to build community? So, um, but being very intentional because that community building does include me in times like these. Well, and that's a perfect lead in to my next question, which is, so you talked about this event that you're holding off campus. What are some other programming and initiatives and activities that you're planning or have um, already had specifically in support of the trans community on your campus? Well, one huge benefit we have at University of Kentucky is the Transform Health Clinic, which was started a few years ago um, by Dr. Kisa Bennett. Um, and it is a health clinic um, specifically focused on LGBT and trans health. Um, and people always say, have you met Dr. Kisa Bennett? And I was like, I went to high school with Dr. Kisa Bennett. I have known her for some time. And it's really exciting, you know, because we are not in the town that we both graduated from high school in Kentucky. That was four and a half hours from here. But the work that she's done is really incredible. And there is um, for there's a clinic specifically at student health care on campus, an endocrinologist who works with students. And then there's the main clinic that's off campus. And there's over a six month wait period to get in because of all the people who are coming from all over the state um, to seek that health care. And particularly a lot of youth are, uh, are coming. Uh, parents are bringing their youth. And so this is, of course, clear evidence that we need these types of um, units. Over 50% of LGBT folks do experience discrimination in a healthcare setting. Um, I have had <laughs> found myself multiple times having to explain my identity or um, why, <laughs> okay, before you're going to examine me down here, I need to explain some things. Um, and it's terrifying. And one time I remember they were doing the stress test. Um, I was going to have a small surgery and they were doing the test where they raise your heart rate. 
And as my heart rate was being raised, the nurse who was doing it started arguing with me about my identity and how she didn't agree with it. And, you know, my chart still said he at the time. And so she was going to refer to me as he, no matter what I felt. And I was thinking, my gosh, you're raising my blood pressure for this test and you're fighting with me about my identity. I mean, just crazy. And so to know that there are these spaces, I think are very, very important and, and clearly they're needed. Um, but outside of that, um, you know, it's a lot of education for folks. I mean, we're doing a whole um, trans week of awareness where we're having a uh, wardrobe exchange for folks and we're having, um, we're showing Paris is burning and we're having a pride party. Um, we're doing more safe zone trainings um, because there are a lot more identities being used today, um, particularly in non-binary um, folks. I just went to this session on pronouns and neo-pronouns because people, you know, tell me that they get confused with pronouns. And I was thinking, y'all don't even know. There were things at this session I'd never heard of. And I tell people, rather than getting frustrated by it, just relish in the fact that we live in a time where students are able to find the language to, or people in general to identify. And I think it's important that we remember that English as a language itself was oppressive, that there was no word in other cultures for transgender. There were just other genders. And when English came in, whether for talking about India or Native Americans or in the Pacific, um, when there was the great British Empire where the sun never set, you know, the language went in and erased a lot of identities. So it's not that there were never, you know, demi boys or demi girls. Um, it's just we didn't have that word for it. But in previous cultures, they probably did, you know, and so that's why when people are like, well, there were trans folks, you you know, in Egypt, I'm like, yeah, but they weren't actually trans. They were just a different gender. And so sometimes we have to take a step back and even think about the fact that English itself, as there was English colonialism, English itself was an oppressive language that erased identities, you know, and so it's not that trans folk have suddenly popped up or that we're, uh, always get asked, is it a phase our youth are going through? No, it's not a phase. Um, and there are more and more students who are identifying because we now have the language for people to identify who they are, where that language did not exist even 20 years ago, um, 10 years ago in the same way, or three years ago when I went to this neo-pronouns and was like, and I've got more to learn as well. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's always changing. So yeah. uh, we shouldn't ever think we're done with the work. So no. Um, so I know that you said you have um, Trans Awareness Week coming up specifically to Trans Day of Remembrance, what does that mean to you both personally and professionally? I think really for both, um, it's to be intentional about taking a moment to stop um, and not only to reflect, but also breathe um, and to really not only remember members of our community um, who have been murdered or taken their own lives. But also, I think, to think about um, who we are and why we're here. Um, I'm thankful on Trans Day of Awareness that I'm here. The suicide ideation for trans folk is so high. 
um, there's all these numbers and I don't think any of them are accurate. I see 50%, 60%, 70%. And I will tell you in my years in working with LGBT students and friends, I have never met a trans person who did not attempt or seriously consider suicide at one point. And I include myself in that. And I don't know one person, Michelle, not one who did not attempt or seriously consider. And that's why when I see this anti-trans movement, it infuriates me because we're picking on one of the most vulnerable populations. I mean, someone who faces discrimination at healthcare and from police and in school, and we're just picking on them. And so I think taking that breath to remember, but to also think of our own space. And for me, um, to recommit to my journey and my advocacy. Um, that's what it is for me is, is that I recommit on Trans Day of Awareness um, and will continue to because I owe it to my community um, to work and advocate for them mm-hmm. and myself. Absolutely. <laughs> us, to advocate for us. What are some of the events that you have planned on campus for your week? We... Um, I mean, our student government association um, under a student named Star Watts, who's the director of inclusion and equity, um, they really came to me. Student government came to me, um, a new LGBT center director who started this summer and said, we want a program with you. And so that's where um, we um, came up with this wildcat wardrobe exchange. We have something called wildcat wardrobe on campus where students um, can get a new suit or interview um, outfit that is paid for by the university. They can get measured. It's sponsored by Student Government Association. So um, students will be able to be measured there. Plus, we're going to have a clothing exchange. I I mean, we haven't even publicized it yet. And I have like six bins of clothes that I'm like, okay. So people are ready to donate. Um, Showing Paris is burning, um, a party, a candlelight vigil, Um, we were going to have a drag show, but Student Government Association moved that to the spring. They're going to sponsor it in the spring along with the wellness resource fair. But then lo and behold, Student Activities Board, which is a different entity from SGA, is hosting a drag show on November 29th. And so again, I say, how lucky am I that both Student Government Association and Student Activities Board really wanted to program with me. I mean, that's like a gift. And so they keep saying, thank you for partnering with us. And I'm just like, uh, no, thank you. You all are incredible. And and I I really enjoy the students at UK. Um, and I, that's just an example um, of, you know, the fact that they want to partner, that they recognize what's going on and that student government is saying, no, we're going to be invested and we're going to show, um, we're going to show our support and, and, and no, let students know that this is a school for them. So I, I love it. That's great. So for listeners who, so you were talking about your own learning and continuing to grow as a person and a profession around um, new knowledge and new language that's coming out. For listeners who want to educate themselves some more, what are some references or resources that you would recommend to them? I really um, would recommend that people um, retake their safe zone training. Um, I know that a lot of us, um, we re- when I got here this summer, 
Um, that was one of the first things we did. I had a doctoral student in philosophy, um, actually, um, Ren Craig, who completely redid the curriculum of our safe zone training. And there's a not lot of new LGBT centered directors, and there's a lot of re-envisioning safe zone training going on, particularly because we halted so many during COVID, because um, um, it was learned that um, online safe zone training isn't the best. Um, and not in, around when I talked to people, um, when people were on screens, um, they felt they could say things um, that were harmful. And, and they're just, the training itself is really designed to be um, engaging and a safe space for people to ask questions but not so much judgmental. And it kind of went that way um, is what we found. And so, but um, I know a lot of schools are redoing their safe zone trainings um, and are um, an emphasis now is really being placed around gender identity. All of our LGBTQ students, you know, are at various places in their identities. And we have, now we have so many people who are out all through high school, or they had a high school that had an SGA, which when I was an undergrad, to go to our SGA, you had to give your name to the president, and they met with you at a coffee shop and then decided if they would let you come to the meeting or not. And that was in college. I mean, but um, a lot of our when I first got here, I, I was interviewing students. Um, I looked to the RAs and the summer orientation counselors who self-identified with the queer community, and I found a lot of people who identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, um, were they didn't come to the center as much, um, and they said that, you know, they were having pretty positive experiences on campus, a lot of our gender non-binary students are the ones who are really struggling, um, whether if it's gender queer or transgender. Um, these are the students that we're seeing a lot more struggles. Um, you know, how faculty or are faculty using the correct pronoun? Are they using the right name? Um, which roster are the faculty using? Are they inadvertently outing students in classes? Um, and so that's where we see a lot more that is needed. And I think um, really engaging in that and steering the campus around how do we do um, inclusion of trans and non-binary folks on our campus? Um, how difficult is it to change your name in the system? We have a process if you want to change your legal name. We have a process if you just want to change your name. Um, and they are both very easy. They're through our registrar's website and you do it yourself and it's done. Um, so when I got here, it was a form that students had to print out, give to me. And then I had to walk over to the registrar's office and I was like, what? No, <laughs> like this is just extra steps. And I know why this was designed years ago, but it's not where we're at. And um, how are we doing gender inclusive housing? Um, these are these are some of the um, really the more difficult conversations have that folks are having on campus. Um, but I, I think redoing the safe zone training is one of the best and looking into what are the pronouns out there. And, you know, when people say, I don't know how to use pronouns, it's like, you ask, what pronouns to use? <laughs> End of story. And I went through that with an entire department this summer that was like, we don't know how to ask students their pronoun. And I went, here is a script to use. And I wrote, hi, my name is Elizabeth Vaughn. I use female pronouns like she, her, hers. 
what pronouns do you use? Like, it's very simple, but I get that people are kind of hung up, that they're like, well, I don't want to offend. We'll ask. If you're asking with care, we know, you know, better ask than um than to assume. Yeah. So, and again, thank you for setting me up for a very smooth interview today. But that leads perfectly into the next question, which is, if there were a few things or not a few, if there were many things um, that you wish everyone in higher education knew about trans students, faculty and staff, and the issues they navigate, the successes they celebrate, and how to support them, what would those things include? I think it's probably summarizing a lot of what I've said. One is recognizing that we are in a movement that is really an anti-trans movement, and it is happening um, in every state, um, but we're seeing the bills and these are affecting students' um, well-being on campus and affecting the safety. And so it is something that we need to be talking about. I think institutions do need to look at how difficult is it um, for students to change their name. Do faculty need access to legal names and why? I mean, one of the changes we want to make is when faculty get uh, roster, it's automatically the legal name. And I thought, well, why not just give faculty the roster that has the name student utilized? I don't like saying preferred name or preferred pronoun because it's not a preference. It's what they use. I use this pronoun. I use this name. And rather making it difficult or, you know, faculty have to click two things to get to the names people use, why not it be the default that they get? And if they need the legal names, we do the steps for that. And I'm not saying this to critique you, Michelle, because I know you're a faculty member, but faculty are going to do what's easiest. And I get that, you know, and so just give them, you know, make it harder. Those are the things it's like, make it harder to get the legal name, but easier to get the name because then, you know, there won't be mess ups with names on the first day of class. I think, you know, gender inclusion with housing, what most student schools are doing in the Southeast is tell us you're trans and then we'll take care of your housing. But that's actually a discriminatory process. And I had a student who wrote, which I put in my safe zone training, who said, I don't understand housing here. I told you I was trans and I didn't get to choose my roommate. You assigned it. My friend, who's also trans, didn't tell you she was trans. She just wrote female and she got to choose her roommate. Why can't I choose my roommate? And that's a discriminatory practice. You tell us you identify as this, then we treat you differently. So we need to think about, you know, how do we create a system for trans students to be able to choose their own roommates? And that's a tricky thing. And it's going to look different on campuses, but you know, and I am as concerned, not, well, not as concerned, that would be a lie, but not only am I concerned for the student who's gender non-binary, I am concerned for the other student in the room who's not comfortable with a trans roommate. There's a reality and they may, or, you know, students um, may have a religious background, particularly Muslim students, to where they could not room with somebody who was trans, you know? Um, and so we do want to keep that in mind, but we need to think about how do we rethink um, and create a system that's like, okay, you identify as trans. Well, here's a pool of people who've said they're very comfortable with a trans roommate um, or who also identify with the trans community. So you can still self-select your roommate. And that's 
difficult and it's still an othering, but it is a reality where we're at right now. And I don't know, um, I don't know um, if I'll live to see us not fighting about gender variation. You know, I, I don't know that I'll live to see that, but I know we're getting better. And when you and I were at Iowa State, I remember because I asked, I remember asking, what would we do if we had a student who identify as trans and I was told we put them in a private room and that's what schools used to do. And so we're not doing that or hopefully, but we're still othering, but we're moving forward. But really to think about how do we get to where all of our students have the same access um, into processes. So um, that's really, um, and it's and it's hard and there's a lot of hard conversations um, to be had around that. Well, so those are the end. That's the end of the questions I had for you. But I feel like the most important question I ask is what else should I have asked? Um, or is, are there other things that you would like to talk about or share? Yes. And um, <laughs> I said that definitively. Yes, you did. I was ready to get on my soapbox. <laughs> so as I haven't been on uh, up until then, but um, I want people at schools in the Midwest and the South to really step up at conferences and present. Um, this summer, I had the privilege to attend uh, my fourth NCOR National Conference on Race and Ethnicity in Portland, Oregon. And I got really frustrated by the amount of schools on the West Coast and East Coast that are showing me their best practices. And I'm like, that's great, but that doesn't work at my institution. I went to one to where it was like, implementing gender inclusion across the university system. And it began with like Governor Gavin Newsom, you know, did a state order where all state entities are going to recognize gender diversity, something like that. And I was sitting next to somebody from Texas who was like, well, Greg Abbott ain't about ready to do that. <laughs> and I said, I know that. And in Florida, Ron DeSantis isn't ready to do that. And I was speaking with one of my colleagues here, Alexis Meza de los Santos, and she felt a lot with the Latinx community as well, as we have these schools on the East Coast, on the West Coast, who have these things in place. It's like, well, that's great, but in Central Kentucky, we don't have a Cesar Chavez Center. We don't have these things in place. We don't have Dreamer Centers. And what you're doing is not reflective as the same fights that we're having on our campus. And I really appreciated uh, NCOR, Billy Curtis. Um, he's the director of the Gender Equity Center at UC Berkeley. And uh, he recognized this difference in a session. And he pointed at me and was like, I remember he was like, girl, uh, you're doing the real work down there. Um, and it's very different than what we're doing. And those of us who are in the Midwest and the South are not behind. We're fighting different battles and we need that space to be created for us. And I need to quit seeing about the best practices at Stanford <laughs> University when I don't have the money or the political backing that they have, you know? And so I really want... NASPA and ACPA and SACSA and other orgs to really think about who are we putting on this pedestal and saying that we should be emulating when that's not reflective of the work that we're doing. And so, and with that, um, and I, and owning this myself of, I really want those of us who are in the South and Midwest 
who are having these battles for us to really step up and talk about it. Um, and again, to push, it's not that we're behind. You don't have the same battle that we have. You don't have the senators that we have or the state legislators that we have. Um, and and yeah, that's what I, I really, really would like to see those spaces created. Well, and I love that you're sharing that because you're not simply outside of those experiences. You worked on the West Coast. And mm -hmm. so it's not like a bitterness. It's just a reality of the the landscape is different, whether that's politically, whether that's geographically, historically, all of those things matter. Um so are you presenting anywhere soon? <laughs> <laughs> I hope to be. I do hope um, to present at Encore. And I have been toying with something around that. Um, Alexis and I have been talking about that, but also um, body image dysphoria in the trans community. Um, we see a lot of body image dysphoria in the LGBTQ community. I think there's, well, not I think there's actually research that shows um, it's higher in the queer community than the dominant. And I'm not, and I'm not seeing that being talked about a lot. Um, and there's there's a lot of things that we need to talk about um, and, and a lot of things we need to move through, but I think body image is definitely one. Um, but as I mentioned before, I, I would like, and um, perhaps I will create that space for us to share what are our narratives in the South? What are we working on? Um, and how do we build community for one another um, that we can support one another? Um, the University of Kentucky, um, I wanted to make sure I plug this. Don't edit this part out. We're actually hosting Mumble Tech next year, the Midwest Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Trans, or Midwest Bisexual, Lesbian, Gay, Transgender, Asexual College Conference. It will be its 31st year. And Kentucky has been involved since its beginnings in the 90s. Um, but we are, even though this is debated by people south of us, I do consider Kentucky a southern state. And we are the first southern state to host this conference. Um, and that's a really big deal. And that will be November 3rd through 5th. There have been schools from Florida and Mississippi and Georgia and North Carolina who have attended Mumble Tech in the past. Um, I'd really like to see these schools really show up um, to Mumble Tech next year, and maybe we can form our own Mumble Tech in the Southeast region, you know. Um, so, yeah, I'd really I'd really like to see a lot of schools show up um, from all over the South because it's as far south as it's been before. It's great. Well, congratulations. And um, yeah, they told me that on my second week of employment. <laughs> <laughs> so it was my second week. They were like, you know, you're hosted at the conference next year. And I was like, uh, what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm happy to, but yeah, there's, there's, you know, <laughs> other duties as a sign come full circle. You're, um, you're hosting a national conference. <laughs> so, but you know, 2000 queer students descending upon Lexington, that's just going to be beautiful. So, mm -hmm. and, um, it wasn't um, that big post-COVID. They've been smaller conferences, but my students, we just got back from the Ohio, um, Columbus, Ohio, um, and my students just thoroughly um, enjoyed the conference and were very motivated by it. And I think we're going to have a phenomenal conference next year in Lexington. So again, November 3rd through 5th, Mumble Tech is heading south. Um, get ready. And I say, everybody in the south, come out and let's take over. That's wonderful. Well, 
I guess as we wrap up, and this is definitely a high note that we're ending on, but, you know, talking about some really heavy challenges that we're navigating and, you know, fear and all of that, to flip that, what are some things right now, Elizabeth, that are bringing you hope? Bourbon. I live in Kentucky. <laughs> we are and the bourbon capital. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I, um, I actually have just gotten into bourbon and I'm like, where have you been all my life? And they're like, they're all over here. Um, there's a whole culture around bourbon making. I had no idea. And there's actually a coalition of African-American bourbon makers now. And it's just, it's wonderful. I mean, for us in Kentucky, that's all local businesses, but there's a lot. So, but for me, um, you know, going back to my undergraduate studies, um, I love music and dancing. And um, when we found out this speaker, Michael Knowles was coming to campus, um, we just turned up the music and started dancing in the center. Um, and everybody was like, oh, I needed that. And we do, we need to release some tension and just move. And for me, moving to the music. And I think similarly to music, and again, we mentioned this at the beginning, um, I used to really not like Christmas um, and really didn't enjoy the holidays and working um, at Macy's because um, I worked at Macy's about five years ago. I was like, ah, you know, I'm in this writing, uh, this writing program. I think I'll, I'll go work seasonally for Macy's. And I ended up working for Macy's for a few years and I loved it. And people would be like, why do you like working at Macy's? And I'd be like, cause it's pretty and it smells good. <laughs> like, And particularly during the holidays, and I love the energy and the holiday music. And so for me, Halloween, um, which has always been my favorite holiday. Um, I remember coming trick-or-treating at your door um, with RAs in costume. Um, one dressed up as, um, he was Charlie Brown because he'd cut out all the holes <laughs> on his sheet. Um, but I like going into the holidays and that I do have my mother here and my sister and my nieces are here. Um, and I enjoy going into the holiday season. And and I hope no matter what is happening in the election, I just, I really hope we can be a little less fractured <laughs> and a little more love. Um, because I don't expect everybody to agree with me. I don't even expect everybody to believe I'm right um, or that I am okay, but I do expect you to respect me. Um, and there's a difference in prejudice and discrimination and you can have whatever beliefs you want, but you got to treat people with respect and we got to treat each people. Um, we got to just treat people well. And that's, I always have that hope and going into the holidays. Um, it is a hopeful season for me. I guess that's why it's the season of hope and giving. Yeah. All right. I was just thinking about, I bet when people asked you, why do you like to be the hall director of Birch Welch Roberts? You never once said, because it's pretty and it smells good. No, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't either of those things, particularly in September, 500 mainly first year men and no air conditioning, yet did not smell pretty. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Still think that was maybe my best two years as a hall director. So it was, a, it was a lot of fun. Um, it was, it was a challenge, but a lot of fun. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, Elizabeth, I really appreciate you talking with me and 
especially, you know, we had talked about doing an episode, but reaching out and saying, hey, can we do this and can we do it before Trans Day of Remembrance? I think this is important. It's timely. Um, unfortunately, it's a topic we probably will be talking about for years and years to come, mm -hmm. but making sure that that conversation is happening and, and just helping people educate themselves. This has been a really great episode, and um, I just want to thank you again for being a part of this. Thank you. I've enjoyed it very much. I hope you'll have me again. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you one more time to our guest, Elizabeth Vaughn at the University of Kentucky. Today's Essay Today podcast is brought to you by SAXA, and we thank them for their support. It was also great to see so many of you at the conference in Birmingham a few days ago. As we wrap up, I will leave you with a quote. How dull it is to have people defining you by Octavia Butler. My name is Michelle Botcher, and it has been a pleasure to host this episode. Have a beautiful day. <laughs>